Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here on this beautiful, beautiful weekend and want to say hello to many of you watching and listening online here around the world. Uh, I was told that I had to wear the shirt again. I wasn't going to wear it. And, uh, and I was lectured last night at a wedding. There was like a whole group of people. Some of you are like, why are you clapping for the really terrible shirt he's wearing? Uh, every year when I go on vacation, I leave right after the second service today. I go to the East Coast, so I wear my lobster t-shirt. So I, there you go. There it is. I love you all. I'll see you in three weeks. Yeah, thanks so much. Welcome to week four in our summer series out of the book of Psalms called Let the Light In. And we've been discovering this, this series together. If you've got a Bible this morning, virtually or physically, I'd love you to turn to Psalm 121, and we'll get there in a few minutes. Three weeks ago, we found out, probably to the shock of many of us, that the Psalms took over a thousand years to write and compile. We were shocked to find out there were many authors, Moses, the sons of Korah, David, and all sorts of people in between. And a whole group of people after that thousand years gathered together and compiled it together in basically the hymn book we have today. We also discovered there's at least 10 styles or genres in the Psalms. They were written with intention, and I use the image of Netflix. When you go on Netflix, you choose a style that you want to watch, so historical drama or science fiction or fill in the blank. Or we talked about golf, where you pull out different golf clubs for different issues. So the same with the Psalms. The Psalms give us the language we need for every situation in our life. The good times, the bad times, the great times, the rageful times, the beautiful times and the boring times. The Psalms give us the language of worship and struggle and faith and hope and everything we can experience in this life. Now, two weeks ago, we got into the first psalm, and the first psalm we looked at was Psalm chapter 1. It's the gateway psalm. It's the psalm that invites us into the rest of the book. It was a wisdom psalm. I use the analogy, it's like wisdom is like singing a sermon. Week two, we looked at Psalm 19, a creation psalm. And the creation psalms call us to look at God as creator. Those psalms call us to look at the artistry and complexity and the beauty and the order and the rhythm of creation as seeing God, hearing from God, and even worshiping God. But today, we're going to move to a different style. Today, we're going to look at a different genre. Today, we're going to look at what they call pilgrim psalms or songs of ascent. These psalms were sung by hundreds of thousands of people as they would go up to Jerusalem to worship God and meet him in his temple. They were usually sung only at high holy days, sort of like Passover or Pentecost, the Day of Atonement, and there's probably 14 or 15 of them. So Psalm 120, if you're taking notes, through Psalm 134 or 135, those are all songs of ascent. They're actually considered a mini hymnal in the greater book of Psalms. Now, Now, as you read through that 14 or 15 passages, here's what you'll find in the themes. There's themes of home. There's themes of dealing with pagan, non-Jewish influence. There's issues of gossip, asking God for protection, gratitude, thanksgiving, mercy, calling out for deliverance from danger. But the focal point, every single one of these psalms is about one distinct thing. It is about pilgrimage, going to meet God at the temple. Every one of these psalms has that as its intention. Now, we probably, I'd probably have to give some modern equivalents because most of us have never done a pilgrimage 
pilgrimage before. Um, one of the modern experiences of this, though not our faith or not our God, is when Muslims go to Mecca. That is a pilgrimage. Or, or in, in the Holy Land, in, in Israel, as people call it, people will go, for example, at Easter, and they'll walk the same way Jesus walked. It's a pilgrimage. It's a religious experience in gathering of people to go and encounter God where they think they can meet him. And so the songs of ascent are written by the Jewish people to go and meet God. Now I want you to imagine this. After a long journey at each of these high holy days, up to a million people would begin to converge in and around Jerusalem all at the same time. Jews from across the whole known world would begin to clog the roads at these moments. And in the last part of the journey, at that point when they would begin to see Jerusalem together by 10 and then hundreds and then hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million people, they would all in the same language begin to sing these group of songs. When they saw the holy city, when they saw Zion, the temple, the city of David, Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is built right on the spot where Abraham bound Isaac for sacrifice. And as he raised the dagger, God said, do not do it, and provided the ram and began to show us that he would intervene and redeem and forgive. Jerusalem is built on right at that spot. And so as they are coming up to meet God in the temple, hundreds of thousands of people would begin to break out in these songs. When they saw the temple, anticipation, authentic expectation would turn to joy that could not even be contained because before them finally was the temple. And why does that matter? Because the temple is the place where heaven touched earth, where forgiveness was given, where the creator of heaven and earth chose to be found. See, we'll never understand the Psalms, especially these Psalms, unless we know and we believe what the Bible talks about in relation to the temple. At the center of the temple, which is no longer there, but in this day, the center of the temple was God's presence. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. Now, Shekinah, I've taught him this before, means the dwelling of God. In the Bible, this presence, the Shekinah glory of God, the supernatural presence of God is always described with brilliance, glory, fire, and an overwhelming unnatural sense or presence of God. Now this presence, I've taught this before, was given or experienced at the giving of the Ten Commandments. As actually, as Israel left Egypt and wandered in the desert, there was a pillar of cloud by day that led them and a pillar of fire by night. That's the Shekinah glory of God. It was experienced when the tabernacle, the tent where Moses met God, and later the temple were consecrated, the same presence showed up. It's the same experience when actually Elijah took on the prophets of Baal and fire came from heaven and consumed the altar. That's the same presence. It was seen at the call of Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's the same presence, by the way, that showed up when the shepherds were with their flocks at night and suddenly the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified and angels pronounced that the Savior of the world had been born, that is Jesus Christ. It's the same glory you see at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ when he is with his blessed friends, his closest friends, and suddenly they see him for who he truly is. It's still seen also at the birth of the church. Right when the church came into existence, it says that this fire from heaven fell, and like tongues of fire, it's the Shekinah glory of God. It was seen at the death of Stephen, the very first Christian, when he looked up and was being stoned to death. He says, I see Jesus 
Jesus seated at the right hand, and the glory of God was around him. And the same glory was found when Saul was going to persecute Christians. Jesus showed up in a vision, and the presence, the Shekinah glory of God, threw him to the ground, and he became Paul. The dwelling presence of God is connected to and is always brought by because it is the Holy Spirit himself. And so when the pilgrims would be coming to the temple, they knew that they had a guaranteed place of encounter. Two of the greatest scriptures that would have been in their minds came from the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple. Here's Moses' experience in Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Or Solomon dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. See, in that temple, God had chosen to settle and dwell. Now, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But God, because he is relational and chooses to be known, chooses at points to make guaranteed places of meeting where his dwellingness or his presence are found. And the temple in this moment in history is that most sacred guaranteed place. That is why there was so much expectation from the people coming to worship. Why? Why were these songs written? Why were these songs composed? Why were they sung? Because they were all going up to the temple and they knew that the Shekinah glory of God was right there. And so our psalm today, if you've grown up in church, you probably know the first line begins like this. I lift up my eyes to the mountains or the hills. Where does my help come from? So as they're gathering together and they're going towards the temple, this is one of the first things they sing. Now here's the question. What does this mean? Many, many scholars actually believe that the Psalms, this Psalm was written during a time of great compromise in Israel. And so as they are walking to Jerusalem, they look up to the mountains and the hills and what do they see? They see pagan worship. In times of compromise, in times when God's people were not faithful, they were worshiping Yahweh and Baal and Asherah and the stars and the sun. They adopted all the gods of the nations and thought they could have their cake and eat it too. And so, 70 times in the Old Testament, the hills or the high places are directly connected to the worship of demons and gods that are not the true living God. And so I want you to imagine this. As hundreds of thousands of people are coming to worship God, they look up to the hills, and then they look over to Jerusalem where the temple is found, and now there is a question being asked by God through the Psalms. Where is your allegiance? Who do you truly love? Where does your help come from? Should you turn to Baal or Asherah or the stars or the sun? Who? Can I have my cake, literally, and eat it too? Can I play with fire and not get burned? Who do I love? Who do I worship? Who do I hope in? Who do I swear my allegiance to? I look to the hills. The choice is here or there. Who do I want? Now, other people say, no, no, that's not what it means at all. They say this was written during the greatest time of faithfulness, not unfaithfulness. And the hills being referred to here are not the hills of compromise. It is actually the ridge of Jerusalem, and the jewel in the center of Jerusalem is the temple. So you're going, well, John, what's, what's the answer? And I go, I have no clue. I don't know. Because we don't know the author's original intent. But this is what I will tell you. 
that actually both of those statements hold historically as true. Because there were times where this would have been sung and the hills would have been filled with compromise. And there were other times where the hills were completely bare of false worship and there was only the one hill to look at. But the answer at the end of the day, whether dealing with unfaithfulness or gratitude and faithfulness, the answer remains the same for the people of God. The maker of heaven and earth is where my help comes from. There is only one God. He is truly in control, and all other gods should be thrown down and rejected. Can you imagine? Can you feel it? Can you imagine walking with hundreds of thousands of people who know the same God you do? And as you cross and you come into that valley and you begin to look up at the temple, you begin to sing with them, my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Like I said last week, creation, all of it, from atoms to angels, whales, trees, sea, sky, billions of stars, bugs, animals, mountains, lakes, every species, everything, from human beings to flowers to rocks to mountaintops, diamonds to dirt, all of creation and its complexity, it's in color, it declares, it proclaims, it pours forth speech about the existence of God and the nature of God, the chaotic order, creation and all of its pageantry and beauty and sweetness and terror, day and night, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, announces, informs, and points human beings to their creator. And yet that maker of heaven and earth chose to be known. The very first thing we see in the Bible is that the God of the universe, who is outside of time and space, chose to walk with Adam and Eve. Our God is personable, knowable, accessible. The transcendent becomes imminent. The unknowable chose to make himself known. And this psalm is saying, and the people of God are saying, I know him, and he knows me, and he's my help right now, and he was my help yesterday, and he's going to be my help tomorrow, and he's my help in every season. When I'm living life, he is my help, and when death comes, God is my help, and this is what they would say, God, you are my help, you are my help, you are my help, you are my help, as they came towards the temple. Now, the next verse is interesting, because we read this as a statement, and it's wrong. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. That word not in Hebrew, I learned this week, actually is used for requests and commands, not statements. And so actually, this is a prayer request. This is not a statement. And what would happen, because this is written, right, to be sung, that this part of the psalm, one person would stand like a choir leader, and he would sing this out, and the rest of the congregation would respond. And so after he declares, where does my help come from? I've looked at the hills. No, my help comes from the creator, the creator of heaven and earth. And then a person would stand up and he would cry this out, but he would cry it out as a prayer request, not a statement. So he says, like, God, will you be our helper? God, please don't let my foot slip. Oh, God, never stop paying attention. Don't fall asleep on the job. Please, please answer our prayer. And so they would sing this, and then the whole congregation would respond with verse 4. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. 
See, unlike human beings, our God never falls asleep at the switch. God is never distracted by world events. He's never distracted by his own stuff because he doesn't have his own stuff. God is not distracted and never falls asleep at the wheel. He'll never make a mistake on paperwork. He'll never let you fall through the cracks. There is no administration issue with God. Our God, unlike every other God, is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. And this is so important that we realize this in every season of of our life. See, remember the gods of the nations, I shared this last week, were basically as bad as human beings, if not worse. Like I said, they stole, they cheated, they lied, they didn't care, they sexually did all sorts of bizarre things, and the only thing that made them different from us is they lived forever and they were more powerful. Thus, they could make human beings' life, their existence, just horrific. And yet, one of the things that is continually found all through the gods of the nation is this they fell asleep. They fell asleep, or they didn't show up when they didn't want to. And that is the distinguishing factor between our God and the false gods of the nations. Do you remember, I referenced it, the encounter between Elijah and the prophets of Baal during one of the times of greatest compromise in Israel's history? And so what did Elijah say? Elijah said, you get all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and you meet me on Mount Carmel. And whoever answers by fire, he's the true living God. And all of Israel showed up. And there was two altars built. And there was a showdown at the OK Corral, literally. And they said, whoever answers by fire. And there was hundreds of Baal prophets and only Elijah. And I love when this happens. Maybe you've heard this in 1 Kings 18. At noon... Elijah began to taunt the prophets of Baal. He said, shout louder. Surely Baal is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or he's busy, or he's traveling. Well, maybe he's sleeping, and he needs to be awakened. Now, this literally reads, perhaps he's deep in thought, he's on the toilet, or he's traveling. Isn't that, he's just throwing it down. I love it. Uh, and maybe Baal needs to be awakened. But see, that's the whole point. As these people would be singing Psalm 121, they'd remember this. They would remember that if the hills were at this moment full of false worship, that event in 1 Kings 18 would remind them that God showed up and Baal didn't show up. Baal was sleeping. God never slept. God answered. Baal didn't answer. Baal did nothing. God gave his Shekinah glory, his power and his presence. And since God doesn't sleep and doesn't need to be awakened, God is trustworthy with our life and everything we have. Anyone want to say amen to that? Like that's the heart of this. So God does not sleep, but there's something even more important when it comes to sleep. If God never falls asleep, that is God is always present and always with us, then that should bring such comfort as we move from life into death. Because the idea is this, that God will never let us fall into eternal sleep and actually will never lose us in eternity. The idea of resurrection and afterlife just starts to bubble up critically in the Psalms. Psalm 1610, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let the faithful ones see decay. See, as people would sing this, they would know that God was with them fully in this life. And when life came to an end, God wouldn't fall asleep or disappear at that moment either. It says in verse five, the Lord watches over you, not us, you. It's very personal. And the Lord is your shade at your right hand. In other words, God will protect you. God will guard you. God will watch over you. God will take care of you. God will keep you. And God will keep us. For God is our shade. 
Now, for those singing this, it would make sense because they were traveling in pilgrimage for hundreds or thousands of kilometers, and they would want shade. Now, I just want to remind everyone, there was no such thing as a car at this moment. There was, minivans did not exist anywhere on the planet. Planes did not exist. Air conditioning, can you believe it? How did they survive with life? Did not exist. There was nothing called a fridge anywhere, a cooler did not exist at all. So as people are journeying for hundreds or thousands of kilometers, it was hot, and this pilgrimage would cause you to be weary and thirsty, and if you were not careful, you could die by the environment because of the sun or lack of food. And so as they're singing, this is a reminder that God will help them on their journey or their pilgrimage. But there's more. See, this is about care. This is about presence. This is about love. See, the word shade here is the exact same word in Hebrew for shadow. And the image here is this. When a mother bird, like a a chicken, takes her little chicks and puts them under her wings, and she comforts them with her presence, and she protects them from the sun or protects them from harm, This word is used multiple times in the Psalms towards us as human beings. Think about this. The creator of heaven and earth chooses an image like a little mother bird to take her chicks under her wings so they feel personally loved and protected and nurtured. And that's exactly what the psalmist has in mind. Listen to all these Psalms. The exact same word. Psalm 17. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, written when Saul was trying to murder David. Have mercy on me, O my God. Have mercy on me, for I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Or Psalm 63, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. That's the image When they're singing, they're saying, not only is God God, not only is he present, not only is he all-powerful, not only is the creator of heaven and earth, but God also loves me personally like that, that he would take me under his wing. He will be my shade, and he will be my father, and he will be my lover, and he will be my holder. He will guard me at the deepest part of who I am. He is so different from Baal, so different from every other God on earth. So verse 6 says, the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. So yes, of course, ravines and wild beasts and robbers and all of that, and this is a call for protection as they're on pilgrimage. Oh, but there's so much more. See, why in the world would we need to be protected from the moon? The sun, I understand. The moon, not so much. It just sits there and it's pretty, right? But if you begin to understand the worldview of the psalmist, you'll understand that this is actually not just a proclamation that God will protect you on pilgrimage as you walk. This is also a call for the living God to protect you from all supernatural evil. Like we learned last week, the gods of the nations specifically were worshipped as the sun and the moon. When Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one, it has roots all the way back here and in other parts of the Old Testament. What this is, is, oh God, would you not only protect us as we go through our journey to meet with you at the temple, also would you deliver us from the gods of the nations? Would you deliver us from all things that oppose you, that hate you, and hate us because we know you? See, verse, this next verse makes so much sense in verse 7 because he says, the Lord will keep you from all harm. That's word is evil. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. 
Basically, this reads in Hebrew like this. God will watch over all your comings and going and every life circumstance and every occupation. So if you were going to write this psalm today, you'd read it like this. God is with me in the office and God is with me while I'm teaching and God is with me in my cubicle and God is with me when I'm cutting my grass and God is with me on vacation and God is with me at work. God is with me at play. God is with me in the hospital. God is with me when I was born. God will be with me when I'm on my deathbed and I'm beginning to die. God, will, God is always with me when I eat, when I sleep, when I'm in the shower, when I'm on the toilet. God is continually with me. And God does not watch from a distance, but God walks with us because he is in us and he is present in the now and into eternity. In other words, God never sleeps. God is always for us. He is always watching us. He is always putting us in the shade and shadow of his wings. He is revealed. He is able to be met and he loves you deeply. That is the song of the ascent. Isn't that beautiful? And if you know God, this is how you get to sing to him because he's worth it. Now the main thing we learn out of the Psalms of Ascent is this. God is always portrayed in the Psalms of Ascent as our ever-present help. At the heart of this small group of Psalms, and it is a very small group of Psalms, we are reminded that God The only God, God, creator, keeper, and protector, preserver, and faithful one, keeps us all the time. In this little psalm, six different times, God tells us that he is our keeper, that he is with us, and he loves us. And so what this psalm says to us, and as we reflect on the psalm, is this. This is saying, look, you need to keep your eye as a follower of God on the true source, which is God himself. You must look up beyond all other gods, look beyond your life situations, look beyond all things to the maker of heaven and earth. Don't trust in your looks, they're going to fade. Do not trust in your education, it doesn't ripple into eternity. Do not trust in your achievements, or your family, or your hobbies, or your investments in things. Do not trust in any other worldview. Do not trust in any other God. Do not begin to play with any other spiritual force or spiritual activity that the scriptures say you may not do. Do not begin to follow any other religious leader. Only God is our helper in the purest and final sense. And the truth of this psalm is this. That God, our keeper, is involved and will continue to be involved. It's exactly what actually God said to Abraham in Genesis 28, 15. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, here's the problem. There's a lot of good things in this. A lot of beautiful statements. But we live in a really scary, messed up world. So we read the psalm and we sing it together and we believe God is our helper and God is our shade and yet, and yet, look around at our lives. Sometimes we're not sure. I was reading a guy this week named Walter Kaiser, one of the greatest Old Testament scholars in the last probably 80 years. And he was actually reflecting on the struggle we have of singing this and experiencing this. And I love when he wrote these words. I'd really ask you to listen close to what he says. He says, why do you load yourself with so many burdens and fears? In these anxious and fearful days, we must learn, and that's important, learn, it's a decision, to cast our cares on God. But how do we do this? 
It's one thing to say that God will protect us. It's another thing to experience that protection. How can one not worry in these days of drunk drivers on the road, terrible plane crashes, terrorism, terrorists blowing up airports, and who knows what else? How do you stop worrying, he writes, about rapists, the child molesters, abusers, etc.? Isn't it almost foolish to walk around most cities now at night? How can we stop worrying about all these things? Well, he says, well, we can do much to at least lessen our anxiety when we dwell in the loving goodness of God, whose eyes never leave us. And then he writes, and your children too. We, we, do, we would do much to lessen our anxiety when we remember that he will never let our foot slip over the edge without personally being there with us and with our loved ones. And then he referenced this really powerful story in the New Testament. Do you remember it? <laughs> Jesus' closest, one of his closest friends, Lazarus, was dying. And Mary and Martha sent for Jesus and said, you got to get here, he's dying. And you, you've done, so, like, just show up. And if you read the story, it's quite shocking because Jesus actually delayed himself on purpose. And Lazarus died. And Jesus came, I think, around four days late. And it says in John 11 that Martha ran up and said, Lord, if you'd just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, where were you? You say all these amazing things and you do all these amazing things for everyone else, but What about now, right here? But Walter Kaiser rightly says these words. He says, but don't forget, the Lord actually did come. And he was there. And he will be, out of the psalm he reminds us, and he will be with us in every moment of our life. He says, this has to be worth more comfort than any security system or insurance policy you can buy. God actually is our defender and our shield. He is not a man thought as growing weary or becoming exhausted or fatigued or distracted by anything, including world, major world events. And then he wrote these words, and this is what sat with me. So let us stop and let us confess our insecurities to God. Now I'm just going to stop the quote for a moment. When is the last time You took a disciplined amount of time as a follower of Christ and not confessed your sins to God, but confessed your insecurities to God. When is the last time you actually sat with yourself and said, what makes me terrified? What makes me panic? What in the heart of me scares me? And actually went before God. Because not, it's not sin. This is, this is just human. But just saying to God, our shield and our rock, the, the maker of heaven and earth, I need just to talk this through with you. And I need to know that no matter what happens, you're going to be with me. But so many of us never take the time. We take the time to confess our sins. But we never take the time to really sit with God and dialogue with him through our deep insecurities. And our insecurities sit in the back of our mind and haunt us. And what is so profound when I read this is I was like, oh. If people would just trust God enough to sit with him. And he's not necessarily going to say it's not all going to happen, but to talk to him about it. Some of you may be terrified your marriage isn't going to make it. You're terrified about your kids. Like, I, you know what my deepest fear is these days? My kids. I'm a dad. Right? 
And I look at the world and I look at my kids and I go, I'm scared, I'm scared for my kids. As a Christian, as a dad, as, as a, of course I am. Every dad's cried if they haven't grow up and cry over your kids, right? Like this, but I, what I'm t- t- trying to tell you is this, like I've learned that I know God is good and I can sing these psalms when I have begun to speak openly to God about my insecurities. And what I have noticed is that the fear and the anxiety begins to be released because I actually begin not only to know that I love God, but I begin to trust him for who he is and what he will do in the now and not yet. And I begin to trust him with me and my marriage and my future and my health and my kids. That's why Walter Kaiser says, let us pray to God to be released from our extra unnecessary baggage of worry and fretting. Recall, he says once again as you read these Psalms, that the Lord actually is our helper and he is our protector and he is our life and this is the critical thing and he will watch over us both in the now and the forevermore and even into eternity. It's what Paul wrote later in Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who love him. For I'm convinced, I know that I know that I know. It's the same heartbeat as the psalmist. That death, life, angels, demons, the present or the future, nor any power, height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the heart of the psalmist. He says he's our shade and he's our protection and he's our right hand. He's going to be with us in every step in the terrible times and the great times. And not only will he be with us in the now, he will be with us in the not yet and he will sustain us in a way that the world does not understand. Here's the second thing you learn when you read the Psalms of Ascent. Community. This is so significant. If I had a louder voice right now, I'd be yelling, okay? The Psalms remind us that being alone on our faith journey is not God's plan. The Psalms remind us that our faith is not an instant zap and everything's right, nor is it a series of pit stops like at a spiritual gas station where you're alone in your car. No, no. Our faith is a faith done in community, in pilgrimage, in journey over a lifetime. You cannot love Jesus without his church. You cannot be involved in our faith and reject community. And the songs of ascent at their core remind us that we are called to worship and struggle and meet the living God together. Eugene Peterson says, the Psalms train us with others who have prayed and are praying. Put our knees on the level with other bent knees. Lift our hands in concert with other lifted hands. Join our voices in lament or praise with other voices that are already weeping or laughing. It's what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10.24. So let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds and not giving, up, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. This verse is so critical as our culture gets busier. We are called to journey together and the songs of ascent remind us that we are called to worship God and speak about God and connect with God with each other. If you abandon community, your faith will shrivel and die. And let me tell you that what you're replacing community with does not last into eternity. 
The songs of ascent say we are in this together. And whether you stay with this church the rest of your life or join another one, that is irrelevant. What is relevant is this. The Psalms of Ascent are a communal cry of worship and connection. It is the heartbeat of our faith. God is the maker of heaven and earth, and he is our helper, and he will always be with us, and he invites us to come underneath his wings. He invites us to walk with him. He invites us to talk out our insecurities. He invites us to have allegiance to him and him alone. He reminds us that we are called to do community long-term together so we can sing together and weep together and laugh together and do joy together as we meet him. But here's the question you all should be asking. So John... When do I use this type of psalm? Like if it really is a golf bag, when do I pull out the golf club? Well, let me tell you. The psalms of ascent is what you should be praying every time before you come to church. Let me say that again. These psalms are the things that all of us in this community should be using before we come to church. Why? Because we no longer travel to a far place on earth to meet God. This group of people sitting here this morning, Christians, every Christian on earth, is now the temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, that I will be their God, they will be my people. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies, our broken little bodies, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is actually in you, who you receive from God, you are not your own. See, here's what we need to realize. The temple no longer exists in Jerusalem, and if they built it tomorrow, it would be irrelevant. Why? Because every Christian on earth now is is the temple of God. And when Christians gather together, this little gathering this morning is the actual temple of the living God. But then that should remind us to stop and prepare before we come. And these psalms are given to prepare us for this very act. And yet so many of us come unprepared to church. Right? Like we're up at 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday and think it's fine. We're going to be just awake and loving Jesus. Really? We're dragging our kids in. We're fighting with our... Listen, I'm just saying, wouldn't it be interesting if our whole church decided that on Saturday night for 10 minutes or Sunday morning, if you have a different experience than I do with three children under seven, however you need to work it, you would take 10 minutes and you would say, Lord, I am coming to your house today and your house is me and all the other Christians, not the building. And I know that you're going to be there. So I am going to prepare myself. I'm going to confess sin. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to come anticipating encountering the living God. And if you'd use the Psalms of Ascent, you would begin to realize that what you're about to walk into is actually the living presence of the living God. See, as I preached over a year ago, corporate worship, what Brooke led us in this morning, is a guaranteed place of meeting God. God is everywhere, but in times of worship and in times of preaching, when people truly come to meet with God and they're prepared to meet with God and they're seeking God, and when they come together, he moves from omnipresence to palpable presence. His sovereignty moves into providence. See, it's Psalm 84.1. We've sung this before, but this should be the cry of every Christian before church. How lovely is your dwelling place? What is that? The church, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. Where is that now? 
Average Christians, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Where is he found? In us. Better's one day among your people in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Should this not be our cry even more than the psalmist? Because we have unhindered, unfettered access and we actually are the living temple of the living God. And my plea with you is that you would regularly come with expectation to church. And who cares who's leading worship? Who cares who is dressed in what way? Who's preaching? Because you know, because you've prepared yourself, that you are going to actually meet the living God. And the Shekinah dwelling presence of God is already here because His Spirit already possesses every Christian in this room. Right? So the scriptures say, each time you will draw near, he will draw near to us. He will do ministry to us. He will set us free. And those who even join us who do not know his love will be drawn because his actual presence is not in these walls, but is actually in the temple, which is us. See, God loves being around and in people that are worshiping. He is drawn to our worship like a moth to a flame. The creator of all things is always moved towards a community that worships him in the good times and the bad times. Let me say it again. Jesus' half-brother James says, you come near to God, he will come near to you. So here it is. Every single Sunday is an ascent. Every single Sunday is a pilgrimage. Every Sunday, right now, This is a guaranteed encounter in this moment for we are the temple of the living God and the spirit of God who was found in the tabernacle and the temple who was upon Jesus, the same fire that fell from heaven that birthed a church is in us at this very moment. Did you come even expecting to encounter the dwellingness of God? Because he is here. He's here. And this changes the whole atmosphere of a church. Because if the church begins to use the Psalms of Ascent and realizes that every Sunday is not just a Sunday, but it's every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And you come and you're like, I am prepared. I am ready for I am going to enter into the temple of God among my brothers and sisters. And I know that I will meet him because I have unfettered access because of the glorious work of Christ and God the Father's beautiful election in my life. Psalms of Ascent are given to the church Saturday night before you put down your remote or after, read one of them. Say, Lord, I'm coming to meet you. Last thought, and love how Joanna, when she was hosting this morning, reminded us of the global church. Because the Psalms of Ascent do one last thing. They remind us of a grand pilgrimage. We are joining billions of people who have gone before us that are already in Zion in the truest sense. And at this moment, think about it, right now, we are joining hundreds of millions of Christians that at this moment all around the world are walking with Jesus, with us, towards the new heavens and the new earth. There has been one grand pilgrimage of God's elect that transcends every culture and all of history. And these 15 Psalms prepare us and invite us not only to the living presence of God right now as we gather week in and week out, but they remind us that there is a Psalm that is yet to be sung. A Psalm that will be sung when we're all with Him. And it's this. 
I cannot wait for this day. They sang a new song. You are worthy, they said, to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, Jesus. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying this song, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them saying to him, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. The songs of ascent remind us of one thing, that there is a psalm to come and the psalm will be more powerful than all others. Because one day, one day there will only be one last ascent and it will be this one. When you read the songs of ascent in the next few years of your life, use them to prepare. If you feel that your faith is falling apart and you need to be reminded that God is your helper, read the songs of ascent. Every time before you come to church, Come prepared, because if we all come prepared, God will even draw closer and be reminded that the pilgrimage, the real pilgrimage, is coming as we meet him in what is to come. Isn't God good? Don't we have a beautiful, amazing, glorious faith? So Lord God of heaven and earth, King of kings and Lord of lords, God of Israel and the church, God who chooses to make himself known, Oh, giver of dwelling presence. Three things I ask of you. Number one, number one, open the eyes of our church to see where you are more, not less. Number two, we know that you are among us every week. But Lord, I pray you'd now prepare this church to come expectant even more than we have even in the last year. Make us expectant, prepared. Lord, draw us to these Psalms to prepare to meet with you. And lastly, I just want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you that there is a day coming where all will be made right and we will join with billions of people who love you and we will worship the Lamb forever who is worthy of our worship because he's so kind to us. Oh, praise be to the creator of heaven and earth. Oh, praise be our help comes not from the hills and not from the gods and not from ourselves, but the Lord, our creator, forever and ever. Amen. 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 Let's stand. Let's stand now and worship the same God. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.